Hey everybody, Happy New Year! Welcome to 2019! We're going to kick off the year with my conversation with Emilio Castillo, who is one of the founding members of Bay Area R&B legends Tower of Power. So back in the late 60s, early 70s, Emilio and Doc Kupka come together and they form, they, they have this sound in their head, this R&B mixed with rock, but a lot of funk, a lot of horns, and they form the Tower of Power. And that band's been going on for 50 years, almost. They have hits like this one right here, What Is Hip? So Very Hard To Go, that's my favorite. Don't Change Horses in the Middle of the Stream. Uh, the 70s were very good, especially the first half of the 70s were very good to Tower of Power. The disco era comes along, things get a little fuzzy. I think they still sound great, but they aren't quite at the top of their game anymore. And then they sort of take the 80s off. And Emilio goes on to collaborate with many people. We There's a fun section in this conversation where we just go through some of the songs that he or the band played on. It's great. Anyway, they eventually came together and they've been going strong ever since. And in fact, in 2018, they put out a new album, which is, I'm not kidding, one of their very best albums. It might be my favorite album of 2018 called Soul Side of Town. So we talk in here about what it was like coming up in the Bay Area during the height of the hippie era, basically. In fact, he knew Sly from Sly and the Family Stone really well, tells some funny stories in here. And later on, also having come from the Bay Area, we hear a lot of stories about Huey Lewis and their support, ongoing support of Tower of Power. Bless their hearts, I gotta tell you. So we talk about those things, we talk about the collaborations. He is a reformed drug addict and is very spiritual and very open and honest about his faith, which I think is beautiful. I love when people do that. So I hope that you will come away from this conversation. If you're only mildly familiar with Tower of Power or you think you know them, hopefully you hear some great, great music in here. As you guys know, R&B from the 70s is like one of my very favorite genres of music. So it was a real honor to talk to him. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this. He called me from his home in L.A. Well, first of all, I gotta, I gotta know. So, I, you guys are, you know, you hail from Oakland, or at least sort of call that your first base or your home base. I uh, grew up in the Bay Area too. I grew up in Concord until I was ten years old, and we moved to Utah in 1983. But I was a mm. big Oakland A's fan. Are you a sports guy at all? Do you care about the A's? I mean, I care about the, the A's, the Raiders, uh, the Giants, all the you know the Warriors for sure. We're playing the Warriors game. Yeah, uh, Thursday we're playing at halftime. You are um, nice. Yeah, yeah, Thursday, and you know I love all those teams, but I'm not a a super fan of those sports. The sport that I really dig is boxing. Really, I can I can watch football and really enjoy it. I, I don't really enjoy watching baseball unless it's like the World Series or something, uh -huh. you know. Uh -huh. uh, so it, that's not my sport, but boxing is my thing. My father was a, a boxer when he was young, and for some reason, I just I love it. I mean, sometimes I'll be sitting around, I'll just go to YouTube and uh -huh. look up the most current fights that were, you know, touted as being great, or uh -huh. I'll look up old fights and favorite fighters of mine. <laughs> I, I love boxing. Really? You know, I, um, boy, I wasn't intending to go down this road, but let's do it. I feel like I loved boxing too. I grew up on it myself and I feel like it's one of those sports that's almost becoming extinct. The, the younger generations don't care or they're not as focused or maybe there's not, 
as many stars as there was, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, like I'm aware of. Do you think we're going to make it? Do you think do you think boxing is going to survive and continue to be a a big deal? I you know, I I, I don't know. I don't see it that way. I mean, really? I see these huge fights filling up the uh, arenas in in England and you know, the big fights in mm. Vegas and Brooklyn and uh, Carson over in California, yeah. and, you know, uh, over at some of the casinos up in the, uh, you know, Connecticut and New York, upper New York, uh, big fights with lots of people. So okay. I don't okay. know, I, you know, they got the, you know, triple G, uh, Gennady yeah. Golovkin and Canelo Alvarez, uh, you know, uh, Andre Ward, Deontay Wilder, uh, Joshua, Anthony Joshua from England, a lot of big, you know, um, Russian and Ukrainian and uh, uh, what is it? Estekin, you know, Lomachenko. These mm. guys are big stars. They're yeah. pulling in millions. Okay. So okay. I don't know. I'm, good. I think it's happening. Okay, good. I guess because I don't hear as many household names, it feels like maybe it's starting to die off. But that'd be great. The, the, <laughs> the Now that I know how you really feel, this may not be a thing. But my whole reason for bringing this up is that when I was a kid... I had my wall was plastered with Ricky Henderson posters, uh, my whole yeah. upbringing, and you I mean wanted the, the baseball player, the baseball player, and I wondered oh, if yeah. you had a Ricky Henderson story. Has your path ever crossed with Ricky Henderson? You know, we we sort of crossed paths one time. I think he came to see us, but as I say, I'm not a baseball fan, mm. so. You know, if you were talking to Doc, he might tell you exactly when he came and everything, you know. Okay. But uh, it's not my thing. But, uh, I mean, I know he was a huge star. Okay. And I do believe he came, came to a gig of ours, mm. but I, I had no interaction with okay. him at all. Oh, shoot. I was hoping there might be some untapped fun stories there. Something that I've been thinking about, I've had you guys really top of mind lately because um, recently I found a copy of In the Slot in a used CD store for 92 cents. Because it was scratched. It had surface scratches. And I bought it anyway, but it played okay. And I've been listening to that on repeat for days. And so even before you and I were going to, uh, were scheduled to talk. So it's pretty serendipitous because I've had t- Tower of Power top of mind a lot lately. And hmm. one of the things that I, I've been thinking about is how it, I find it interesting that you guys are often sort of uh, bundled together with like Chicago and Blood, Sweat and Tears as these bands from a similar, you know, late 60s, early 70s that incorporated horns into their music. But I feel like those guys were more uh, rock band with horns and you guys are more funk and R&B. And it got me wondering if because you came out of the Bay Area, if you saw yourselves as being heavily influenced by maybe Sly and the Family Stone or something like that. What what made you think as a, as a white kid in the East Bay that I want to be one of the funkiest white men in rock history. How'd you do that, Emilio? Well, for one thing, Sly and the Family Stone had a huge influence on us. Uh, Good. There was two bands that really influenced me. The one that most influenced me of all was a band called The Spiders. You led me to be
East Bay, and they were never famous, and they broke up and went away. But while they were together, that was the tightest, most soulful hmm. band with horns I had ever seen. And that's what really drove me to hire a trumpet and start a horn section and to play soul music and to have really great background vocals and uh, super um, soulful uh, live presentation. Sly and the Family Stone, before they ever made a record, appeared uh, for a year at a club in Hayward, California called Frenchies. And we used to go there, me and my bass player, Rocco, would go there when we were like, 17 years old he was 16 and we would go to the club climb over the fence they had a cyclone <laughs> fence and in the back where there was a pool a swimming pool and we would go over that fence and go in the back of the club and sneak in on weekends and they would play before hours and after hours mm. after hours was uh, when they closed up the bar and only served soft drinks and there was also a law in that city and in most of the bay area that you couldn't dance between 2 and 6 a.m. So when the band played at that time in the after hours, they had to put on a show and entertain you. Huh. And Sly and the Family Stone used to come down off the stage onto the dance floor and have ham bone contests. And they would do these things like they'd play a song and then everybody would move over one instrument and then they'd move over again. And they would do that all the way through till every guy had played every instrument and they were back on their instruments and they would do these you know skits and routines and little mm -hmm. little things to entertain you through the night you know Crazy. 45 minutes on 15 minutes off 45 minutes on 15 minutes off and people were out in the, in the parking lots on the break you know drinking in their cars then they come yeah. in and buy a coke and uh, yeah. and that was the deal you know we used to go see them for a long time and also it was right when, you know, Sly was starting to break, he, you know, he, his band, you know, he made that first record, a whole new thing. And it was known, you know, that they were the hottest band. And so the guy had signed them to a one-year contract, but Sly, you know, halfway through the contract, realized he didn't want to do it. So he started not showing up. And on those nights, his band would play without him. And some of those really? nights were my favorite nights because they had to do all this weird, different stuff, you know, or a slime may show up later or, you know, and that, that's just the way it was. And, uh, we would always, we would drive down the street. It was on mission Boulevard, which was kind of like the cruise. You know, uh -huh. that's where all the hot cars and you took your chick and you went up and down mission Boulevard through Hayward and San Leandro. Frenchies is at the top of it, you know, and, yeah. uh, we would drive by and there was a big, you know, um, neon sign on a really high up on a pole and at the base of the pole that's where sly used to park his 57 t-bird with a flowered vinyl top oh no and way if that t-bird wasn't parked at the base of that sign we knew he wasn't there and he <laughs> might drive down and just cruise you know and come back later and uh you know we and the thing about flying the family stone we didn't want to sound like them. Uh -huh. We wanted to have the excitement of our li of his Ooh. live show. You know, we wanted yeah. to entertain people and get them excited. Yeah. And also, also, Gregorico was his drummer. Mm -hmm. They called him back then. They called him Hand Feet. And I tapped into that. You know, hand. They called him Hand Feet because 
he did unique beats. Hmm. And my brother was the drummer for the band back then. And I used to make up weird beats and I would just, you know, teach them to him and, and just like rehearse them. Just me and him, you know, yeah. long time, you know, working up these weird beats. And then I would put those beats in obscure R&B songs uh-huh. rather than the beat that was on the record. I change it up, you know. Yeah. So that's kind of how Sly inspired me. Huh. And Sly was... at the time was was a, a disc jockey. Yeah. K-Soul Radio and later KDIA. And he was the most popular disc jockey in the Bay Area. Everybody listened to him. That's crazy. Was, uh, did you, so two things. Number one, did the multi-ethnicity aspect of Sly and the Family Stone, did that play into you at all? Or were you just looking for the best musicians? Didn't matter what, I mean, maybe these guys are just your friends. Because that was kind of a revolutionary move on their part. And then you guys did something similar. It was by coincidence. Really. Coincidence, I mean, okay. I, I admired the fact that, I mean, that that was obviously a plan for him. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to have a black girl play right. trumpet. You know, number one, you didn't see girls playing trumpet. Right. And you didn't see blacks and whites together. And, and plus, you didn't back then, for soul bands, you didn't see soul bands sort of, you know, wearing the kind of clothing and yeah. having long hair, white guys with long hair and beards and, you know, black guys with afros, but wearing this sort of flowery, hippie-looking clothing. You didn't mm-hmm. see that then. So that was obviously a plan of his. But that was not our plan. You mm. know, uh, we just sort of became uh, multi-ethnic. Mm. Okay. And then secondly, did you ever like interact with Sly back then? Do you have a Sly story? I have a lot of Sly stories, but the- they're all from later. Uh, oh, Sly really? was, yeah, Sly was, he, to me, he was an idol, you know? And yeah. so I was always afraid. I, would, I didn't even know any of them back then. We were just kids sneaking in the club. Sure. You know, and then, but later on, when we became, you know, counterparts, uh, well, contemporaries, right? You're both professional musicians. Yeah. And we would play shows together. And we've had a few stories that were uh, pretty amazing. You know, one one was uh, when Sly was, you know, after a while, he became sort of known for not showing up and, you know, having some shows that were not very good, playing too short. Or, you know, there was a lot of bad uh, rumors yeah. about him. and It was affecting his box office. And a lot of people would get angry about it and stuff. And we were doing shows with him during that period. And we were at, you know, we were at the top. We were doing good mm-hmm. and playing great. So, you know, several times we played and sort of stole his thunder. And I remember uh, my manager, Ron Barnett, needed to call his manager, Ken Roberts, about something. And when he called... Ken Roberts had this really snarky attitude, like, you know, I oh. know, man, you don't need to rub it in my face. Like, oh. in other words, like Ron was calling him to say, hey, we kicked your butt or something, you know, right. but that wasn't at all why he called. But that that was how, you know, Ken Roberts sort of approached the conversation. Huh. And also, you know, uh, at the time, I remember playing the Michigan Palace in Detroit, which is my hometown, you know, mm. and we're playing with, Sly and the Family Stone. And back then, you were all into a lot of drugs, and obviously Sly was, you know. And Doc, who, uh, you know, Sly dug, Mm -hmm. and uh, Doc went to him before the show, and we're opening, you know, Sly is closing the show. Mm -hmm. Uh, Doc goes to see Sly to see if he can get a bump of cocaine or something, you know. Sure. And he goes in, and Sly says, hey, man, Doc, uh, come on in. He invites him in the room. When he goes in the room, 
this big bodyguard guy shuts the door and starts to tell him that he had this dream. Because we were there like two nights. So this is like the second night. He said, yeah, Doc, I had this dream last night. And in my dream, you were in my band. You know, and Doc goes, wow, that's cool. You know, he's hoping he's going to break out some drugs, you know. Uh-huh. And so I goes, yeah. And he goes, so uh, I think that, uh, you know, that's how it's supposed to play out. You know, he's basically telling him, you know, you're going to be in my band. And so Doc <laughs> starts to sort of backpedal. You know, he says, yeah, he says, yeah. He goes, yeah, you know, I, I appreciate it, you know, but, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm with Emilio, you know, yeah. I'm in, I'm in uh, the Tower of Power. I, I'm yeah. in a band. He says, yeah, I know. But, you know. Sometimes, you know, and he just starts really leaning on him, like, you're going to be in my band. Oh, and Doc got really afraid. He thought, you know, maybe the, the bodyguard wasn't going to let him out. Yeah. He was going to get accosted. It got really scary for him. And finally, he just said, I said, look, you know, man, it's like, diggy man, but, you know, uh-huh. I'm in Tower of Power. Right. And he kind of, you know, motioned towards the guy, and the guy let him out of the room. And he came to me, he's like, man, I barely got out of the room. You know? <laughs> Did he at least get the Coke? I don't think he did. Oh, he didn't even get the coke after all that. Sly kept it for himself. So, no. Man. Oh, boy. I bet there's a million stories like that with Sly. So he, there's something I've wanted to know. I've always wanted to ask this. What are the biggest challenges? And you would know this probably better than anyone, considering you're sort of the musical director for this band of yours. What are the biggest challenges of employing a, a band of that size? Because... You have to pay like 10 to 12 people a night. You know what I mean? Is it hard? If anybody knows what you mean, it's me. Yeah, that's why I asked. Tell us yeah, about it. I tell that. people, you know, I tell people, you know, having a band this size is a logistical nightmare. I bet. You know, especially in, in this day and age, because, you know, these, in this day and age, it's a worldly type scene. I mean, we can have guys that live in New York, Memphis, Texas, Utah, Oakland, LA, San Diego. And you got to figure out, you got to fly them in. You got to rent cars. You got to get transportation to and from the hotel, from, from the airport. Are we taking a bus, you know, uh, yeah. the airline tickets, where are we returning? When they return, they all got to go back to their respective cities. But back in the day, it wasn't that way. You know, we all mm-hmm. lived in the same city. A lot of us lived together. And yet still, a logistical nightmare. Yeah, you know? I mean, no matter what you're doing, you're moving like 16 people, you know, yeah. the band and the crew and the people associated with it. You know, I tell people when I do horn section clinics now, they say, you know, you have any advice for young people? I say, yeah, have a trio. <laughs> <laughs> I know it just feels, I mean, it seems, I mean, the world is so grateful for the Tower of Power sound, but it just can't be easy logistically to keep something like that going and and sustainable so that everyone involved can, you know, make a living doing this thing. It just yeah. can't be easy. I mean, we got it down to the science at this point. You know, we've yeah. been doing it for so long, and obviously it's not as though we're going to come out next year and go, hey, we made a decision. We're a four-piece, you know. Yeah. That yeah. just ain't going to fly, you know. Sure. So we got it down to a science and, uh, you know, God has blessed us in a way that we're able to make salaries. You know, everybody makes a decent living. We're not filthy rich or nothing. We're not like the, uh, you know, the megastars of the world, but you know, we're we're making a decent living and we're doing what we love and we're playing the kind of music that we really want to play. So it's a blessing. Good. 
So when did you notice things starting to turn for you? I, now, I mean, I'm 45, so I wasn't around at the very beginning of Tower of Power. Tower of Power. The first album comes out. It does pretty well, I think. And then, I don't know. Are you noticing like when Bump City comes out and you got to Funkifies? that really the the turning point or the first big hit when did you start to notice that hey maybe there's something to this maybe we can make a living and get songs played on the radio and be a professional musicians well for one thing i was a kid you know when i started yeah. the band when i hired doc i was 17 years old oh goodness. you know so I wasn't thinking about, can I make a living or, mm. you know, is this going to go fly? All, all, all I knew was the band. That, mm. that was my life. I loved the band. That was my forte was running the band, teaching these guys how to play soul music together in a manner that, you know, I had a vision for. And uh, when the first album came out, East Bay Grease, it was only a regional hit. Yeah. But I mean, the first time I heard it, they played Sparkling in the Sand on K-San Radio. Dusty Street played it. When God made you, he had a lot to do. In a day or two. And I was banging on the wall. Doc was in the other room. I was banging on the wall. You know, we woke up to that sound. Yeah. I said, they're playing us. They're playing us. I couldn't believe it. You know, and then yeah. a little while later, they played Knock Yourself Out and Social Implication. And then, you know, in the Bay Area, they would play that whole album. 
you know, oh, that good. was when FM radio first started and they would play whole albums, you know, mm-hmm. and then we, we became friends with those disc jockeys. We would go there and we would disc jockey in the middle of the night with Baco and, you know, uh, Dusty Street and, you know, Tom Donnie, he was the program director. They loved us. And so yeah. we, we had that sort of regional success. But when we went on tour, there were no records anywhere. Nobody knew who mm-hmm. the hell we were, you know. Yeah. So it was really, the turning point really was when we did Bump City. We went to Memphis. We worked with Steve Cropper. Mm-hmm. He produced that record. You know, we hadn't recorded You're Still the Young Man because David Rubinson thought it was, and this is a quote, he said, that song's too much. And that was the first song we ever wrote. We had been playing that longer than any song. And it was a big song for us, yeah. you know, live. And we were disappointed we couldn't put it on our first record. But, you know, it was God's providence because we got it recorded properly with Steve Cropper. You know, mm-hmm. when we played it for him, you know, I told him the story about what Dave Rubinson said. He says, yeah, well, he goes, well, we'll record that one for sure, you know. Mm-hmm. And we did. And that was the first single. And it was a nationwide hit. Nice. And that's when things changed for that's us. That's when it changed. What would you consider your signature song to be? Is it, is it what is hip? Is it so very hard to go? Ain't nothing I can say, nothing I can do. I feel so bad, yeah. I feel so blue. I got to make it right for everyone concerned. Even if it's me, if it means it's me, what's getting burned? Cause I could never make you unhappy. When you cl- when you do a show, what are the what are people mostly pining for? The one they mostly pine for is uh, "You're Still a Young Man" and "What Is Hip." Okay. You're so very hard to go is one of our biggest hits. 
it's it's got a weird title. Yeah, <laughs> people yeah. don't remember it, you know. But yeah. every time we start it and we get into it, then they're like, oh. And when I we end it, they usually stand up, and it's like a standing ovation because yes. they love the song. But they're always ready to go. You know, when we say, you know, let me ask you the eternal question. Boom! What? Yeah. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> they know. You know, they got to have that. Yeah. And, and then you know, we can't leave the building without playing. You're still a young man. Yeah. Uh, and that's in the states. In in Europe, it's different. We can go and do some shows without you're still a young man there. And when we do it there, they they love it and appreciate it. But it's different. Okay. In the states, though, we have to play that song. Okay. Now. From everything I read, and again, this is, you know, I'm, I wasn't there paying full attention. It sounds like once kind of the disco era kicked in, like the late 70s, did you guys kind of flounder a little bit? I don't know if you felt like tastes were changing and the kind of funky R&B rock style was going out and you needed to sort of, you know, adapt to this new disco sound or what was going on with you guys? Well, you know, we were on a downward trajectory from about 76. When we signed with CBS, uh, you know, they gave us so much money. We couldn't, we couldn't stay. We had a great offer from Warners to stay there. And in retrospect, that was a huge mistake. We should have stayed because they, they understood the band and we had our most success there. But, you know, if you read that book, Hitman, you realize that, you know, Yetnikoff, he was trying to get even with Mo Austin and, you know, uh, Joe Smith and mm-hmm. Armander, you know, they, they used to try to outbuy each other and they would just buy bands, mm-hmm. bands that they didn't even want. And we were yeah. one of them. Uh-huh. They gave us a ton of money. You know, it was, a, it was the cocaine era. And then the disco came in. We did our first album for CBS. It was a pretty good hit. Mm-hmm. Our second album, they started looking at us like, like a problem mm-hmm. that needed to be solved. You know, when you approach anything that way, you're losing the battle, you know? And then, and then, you know, because they gave us so much money, we want to please them, you Mm -hmm. know? And so they're telling us, you know, we need you guys to try to sound more like these other bands that are getting airplay on the radio, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and we try to do that for them, you know? And, and then they say, disco started to come in. They say, you know, what if you were to, uh, you know, redo an old Motown song, disco style, Mm -hmm. so-and-so did it. It really Mm -hmm. worked, you know, Mm -hmm. then we can get you more airplay, you know? And so we try to do these things, but we always sounded like Tower of Power. Yeah. And for a a while there, we thought, you know, why can't we sound like the other bands on the radio? Mm. You know, it's a curse the way Mm. we sound. And, uh, we tried to do that. And then finally it all fell down, but the real, driving reason for the trajectory downward was the way we were living really we were, we were ruled by drugs and alcohol oh, man. and we were not living right and that's the sole reason why we were on that trajectory i know that now yeah. looking back but at the time we were just like we would blame it on disco and blame it on sure. cbs and blame it on this and that but the truth of the matter was we weren't living right you know and yeah. then when everything dried up we lost our contract we got re-signed to Warners, but never made a record. They gave us a ton of money. We played, paid off our bills, and but we had no record deal. And mm-hmm. they started referring to us as dinosaurs. Uh. They said their music will never be popular again. By this time, disco was out, and punk and new wave mm-hmm. was the thing. Yeah. Bands like the Knack and the Cars and the Motels and yeah. you know that kind of stuff. 
And, you know, they, they said bands like Tower of Power, they're dinosaurs. Their music will never be popular again. But we always had fans and we could always get gigs and play live. Yeah. So that's what we did. We had no record deal. It was tough. And then we took a tour with Huey Lewis and the News. They there were we big go. fans of the band. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the horn section played with him almost four years. And uh, I made a deal with him that I would do that only if he allowed me to bring the band out to big cities and to midnight concerts and that they would announce it at the arena and come and sit in with us really? at the club. And we did that all over the nation. And I also told him, you have to promote Tower of Power at every turn. And he was a man of his word. Good. Every show we were featured highly. He yeah. mentioned each guy by name. He brought Doc down in the middle of the show and had a big, you know, uh, showcase on Doc. And in every interview, he mentioned yeah. Tower of Power and Tower of Power Horns. And at that same time, we started to get asked onto the uh, Letterman show. We wound up mm. doing 16 performances on Letterman. Really? And so that started to bring us back. Up. That's what got us to the 80s, you know. Okay. Uh, but, but what happened is when everything dried up, I told the band, you know what? Let's forget about trying to sound like other people, trying to, you know, solve our problem. Let's just make the music like we always did. Right. And we started to do that. And things started to get better. And That's then great. we realized we weren't cursed because we don't sound like anybody else. We were blessed. Yeah. It's a blessing, not a curse. Very we good don't point. sound like nobody else. Yeah. We used to have a, a, a singer named Tom Bose. He used to say, you guys can play the phone book and it would sound mm -hmm. like Tower of Power. You know, it's just, that's who we are. And yeah. we realize it's a blessing now. We never stray from that anymore. That's great. Wow. That, I have so many questions. First of all, so working with Huey, I mean, I knew that you guys collaborated. I believe that's you guys playing on like Perfect World and Working for a Living and I Want a New Drug. You guys are the horns on these songs, correct? And I want a new drug. We used to play with them live. On the oh, okay, not in the did it with his own set. And okay. Working for a living, we recorded on that one. We recorded okay. on several of his other tunes. Hope you love me like you say you do. Yeah. Uh, doing it all for my baby. Right. Uh, the, uh, if this is it. Uh, a lot of us hits we were on. Uh, and then we played a lot more of them live as well. Yeah. He made live recordings and DVDs. We were on all of it. That's great. Featured prominently. 
And he recorded, uh, he recorded a song that we wrote as well called Simple as That. Oh. And uh, yeah, he, you know, he asked me, he's such a fan of the band. Yeah. He said, I mean, you got any stuff that never got released? And I had all this material that I had done in L.A. Uh, in the early 80s and never gotten released. And he loved all of it, you know. But Simple as That, he really loved that. And he took it to the band and said, man, we need to do this tune and really on that road. And so you did. Wow. Um, you know what? This just reminded me of something else. You, <laughs> I'm not getting political here. I just think this is interesting. Year and a half ago or so, I had Lee Greenwood on this show. The guy who sings, you know, God bless the USA, the country artist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he is from Northern California as well. And when we were, I was asking him about, you know, starting out, and he said when he was a kid, what he really wanted was to be in Tower of Power. You guys were his very favorite band. And I just thought, that that shocked me that the guy who He's a sax player too, right? Uh I don't that's a good question. He might be. I don't I think, think he, when he does started that. out, he used to play sax. I think you're right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Originally he wanted to be like you guys. And then eventually yeah, became I... the guy that sings, you know, God bless the USA at Republican rallies. Isn't that interesting? I believe he came to see us in the early 80s and when we were playing the lounge at Harris Tahoe. I think you're right. told us that. Yes. I think he told us that. Yeah. Yeah. We were kind of amazed. But you know, I didn't know he was from Northern California. I believe he was. If I remember correctly, I think he's from Marin or, you know, up wow. above in the Sausal. I think. I have This was like two years ago, so I'm not 100% sure. But anyway, I just mm. thought that was really interesting who some of your fans are. And then secondly, you mentioned before about, you know, being so bogged down with drugs. I'm curious, did you ever have to go to rehab or anything like that? How did you I wound up at a hospital in 1988. Really? St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica, California. And that's when my life changed. I got sober in my sober date is February 20th, 1988. And, you know, for a year, Doc always says whenever Doc speaks at a uh, 12-step meeting or something, if I'm there, he'll say, I'm so grateful uh, to be able to speak tonight and that Emilio is in the audience because uh, the year before I got sober, he made my life hell. (laughs) (laughs) And I was determined, you know, that he would get sober because he's my main partner, you know, and a year later in 89, he got sober. Yeah, that's great, man. You sound, um, and we don't have to you know, dwell on this too long, but you've mentioned a couple of times, you know, for the grace of God or whatever, did you, were you always sort of a spiritual person or did that, was that a result of getting clean? It's a result of getting clean. You know, I got into the program. 
I realized that you had to tap into this power greater than yourself. I wasn't going to be one of these people that said, oh, you know, I believe in the cosmos or I believe in the ocean or I believe in the doorknob. You know, I I knew there was a God. I always believed there was a God. It's just I wasn't living right, so I didn't want to think about it and I didn't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But I believed there was a God and I knew I was going to have to face him someday and own up to all the crap I had done. So when I got into the program, it was just by fluke, really. I I, I didn't really go there to get clean. I had given up. I went mm-hmm. there. I thought I was going to die. You know, I thought they were going to let me sleep and eat for 30 days and push me out. Yeah. And I died before I was 40. I was 37 at the time. Wow. But uh, I saw that uh, I went into a lecture on the 12 steps. And that was the day I realized that you can stop and not be miserable. And I wanted it more than anything from that point on. I never drank and used again, but I pursued it yeah. in a big way, you know. And yeah. uh, part of that process is, you know, getting a, a relationship with a power greater than yourself. Sure. You know, it sure. says it right in the book, you know. Yeah. It's just the main object of this book is to introduce you to a power greater than yourself that will solve your problem. Yeah. I had a problem and I needed a power greater than myself to solve it. And then along the way, I started praying, I started reading the Bible, reading other self-help books, you know, uh, Scott Peck, you know, The, the mm-hmm. Road Less Traveled, and all these Emmett Fox books, and, mm-hmm. you know, William F. Preston, and Marianne Williamson. I checked out New Age, I checked out the Buddha, and Course in Miracles, and I checked every sort of religion and every sort of avenue to God there was, but I kept going back to the Bible, and eventually, years later, I came to Christ, and now I'm mm-hmm. a Christian. Okay. But that's only because I worked those steps. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. I always, you know, I, I find, especially rock stars, where, you know, rock stars are just regular people, too, but we we associate them with debauchery and, and uh, glitz and glamour and stuff like that, and I find it really fascinating what their inner spiritual lives are like because they don't talk about that very much they're all about rock you know and so i just think yeah i think it's really interesting to find out kind of what's going on under the hood with people like you and so that's a really fascinating story i'm I'm, thank you for sharing that now i wanted to ask you about putting out new music because you guys put out a new album this year soul side of town which to me is just as good if not better than anything that you guys may have done in your heyday It is fantastic. And look, I would tell, uh, well, that's not true. 
I wouldn't tell you if I didn't like it, Emilio. I just wouldn't say anything, you know, because I talk to yeah. a lot of legacy artists on here and sometimes they put out new music and it's okay. And I just, tr- I, you know, I don't get that enthusiastic, but I love this album. What is the motivation for a legacy artist like you to put out new music today when, let's be honest, people don't buy new music, you know? Is that a is is it difficult to do that, or is this just sort of what you do? This is you going to work. Well, I mean, it is what I do. I, I'm a, I'm a songwriter. I'm a record producer. You know, I'm a member of a horn section. I'm a leader of a band. I'm a singer. I wear all these different hats, and they all, you know, that's my drug these days. I mean, I realized after I got sober that you know I get higher on that stuff than I ever got on any drug or alcohol. And so, yeah, that's what I do. It's how I live. And we were coming up on 50 years. And when you say it sounds as good or better than any record we ever made, that's because it was a plan. And oh. I prayed about it. And I got, you know, I, 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 I sought out help in order to bring that plan to fulfillment. An old manager of mine, Ron Barnett, said, you need to make the best record of career, your career. It's not the time to throw together 12 songs and just throw it out. You need to record, do the Michael Jackson method. Record way more than you need and pick out the best. Mm -hmm. And so my plan was to record 25 songs and pick out 12. And uh, I had recorded 17 basic tracks and then I got asked to go do some days with Joe Vanelli at his studio. Mm. We did a couple more. He was very meticulous and very creative, an excellent musician, an excellent engineer. And as at that point, I realized with all my touring and everything else I do, the project was too big for me. So I asked him to help me produce it. This is all in my plan to make the best record of my career. Good for you. And what finally happened was, we did 28 songs and we got a new record deal with Mac Avenue records and they loved all of it. They yeah. wanted to put it all out in two separate albums. And we were fine with that because we're proud of all of it, but we didn't want to put out two records. So we have another one waiting in the wings, ready to go yes. next year. Yes. Oh, that's great. I think that's really amazing that you guys are still so vital. And especially, I mean, like you said, you, you plan this out. Does it ever kind of kill some of the buzz, though? That that I mean, I don't know. Maybe you sell the CD at shows, and and there's a real desire for it. It's just a shame to me that in this day and age, the market for music being what it is, that the people who would it, it's hard to get this great music in front of the people who would appreciate it. You know what I mean? You know, it's it's a challenge because you know we're an older band. It's a it's a different style of music that's very unique. But the truth of the matter is, it's selling really well. We Good the charts for the first time in our lives, and you know we're not like you know uh, we haven't become like overnight as big as all you know some of the big stars out there. But it's it's selling. It's doing good. But here's the thing: it doesn't matter. Mm. <laughs> I fulfilled my plan. Good. I can listen to that record all day long. I love it. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to do. Good. So if it doesn't sell another copy, I'm absolutely blessed and happy, you know. But for you, man. Fortunately for me, it's selling really good. I mean, we do sell it at gigs. We sell the vinyl copy and the CD copy, and they're selling great, you know. Nice. And, uh, and, you know, it's streaming well, and, uh, and you know, it's doing good. So good. we're putting out this new single, Any With My Baby. 
me. And if that don't fly, we'll try another one. And, <laughs> and we'll keep doing it, you know. And then uh, when all else fails, the next record will come out. You yeah. know? And uh, who knows what will happen. I don't know. Good but as you. I say, it doesn't matter. Good. I made it the way I want it to be. And I'm proud of it. That's great. So I can go to my grave knowing best record I've ever made. Yeah, it is. That's incredible. Good for you. Um, I want to ask you about some of your some of your other collaborations besides Huey. You worked with the Brothers Johnson. Is that you guys on Running for Your Love? Yeah, we we uh, we toured with Quincy Jones when he had his hit record Body Heat, mm. and he loved the band, and we loved him, and the Brothers Johnson were in his band. Yeah, and uh, and he told us these guys are going to be huge stars, and when I do their album, I want you guys to play on it. We said great, you know, mm-hmm. and he was true to his word. He flew us down to L.A. We did the session for the Brothers Johnson. It was an interesting story. We were on a break and we were talking and, you know, Quincy loves us. He was, he was just sort of gushing all over us. And yeah. somehow in the conversation, it came out that we had never gotten a gold record. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he said something like, you guys must have tons of gold records. And we said, <laughs> we ain't got any. And he said, what? <laughs> and we said, we don't have any gold records. He goes, you gotta be kidding me, man. The, the, the album of what is hip didn't go gold. And we're like, well, they haven't sent us one. He goes, let me tell you something, man. This record we're doing today, this is going to go gold, and you're getting a gold record. And, you know, like a couple months later, it came to my house. That was my yes. first gold record, the Brothers Johnson. No way. They're a, they're yeah. an all-time favorite. No, I, I might even love them more than Tower of Power. They're an all-time <laughs> favorite band of mine. Do you keep in touch with them? I know Lewis I passed not. away a couple of years ago, but uh, yeah, I believe George is still yeah. out there somewhere. I wondered if you knew them or anything. Oh, no, I'm always I trying don't. to track I mean, him we down. We did the session, and that was it. I, I really never saw them again. You know, oh, wow. I, I, I knew them when we were touring before they were even famous. You know, yeah. before they ever recorded, and they were great guys and great players. You know, but and once we did the record, I never saw mm. them again. Okay, uh, man, your the the band's website. I went down the rabbit hole on this list of of collaborations you guys have done. So I have a few questions on here. Number one, and are you guys on? Elton John's The Bitch Is Back. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's around that Caribou album. The whole thing. Crazy. Yeah. Wow. Now that had to have been another, I don't know, gold album for you guys. No? Maybe they just didn't uh, send you one. They didn't send me one, but I I got a uh, platinum one for for that one. Okay, good. You know, if you're on a record like that, you can just contact the RIAA and you know pay the money and they'll send you one and I did that for a few you know really uh, I have a couple of Santana records I have a yeah. Huey Lewis Huey Lewis gave me one you know uh, and then we did finally go gold with the Tower of Power record and uh, so I have that so I, I got a few you know good 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 what was it like working with Elton how did, did he call you and just say I'm a fan I want you on my album he, he contacted us I mean it was his idea but he wasn't at the session when we recorded it was, oh. uh, yeah, it was his engineer. Uh, what was his name? I can't remember. Hugh, no, Gus Dudgeon. Hugh Padgett. Gus Dudgeon. Yeah, That's it. Was it. Gus, Gus Dudgeon. Dudgeon. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just Gus Dudgeon and us. And it was actually a couple of days of recording. And I remember he, uh, the, the memory I have of it is he did playback unbelievably loud. I oh. mean, painful loud. <laughs> so we'd be out in the studio and, uh, We'd be recording, and then we'd go back in, and it was like being blown over by wind, you know, uh-huh. so loud. And I remember at one point, I was playing, and he said, you know, it seems that there's a bit of an intonation problem. Please come <laughs> in the studio. And so we go in the control room, and he had my saxophone soloed. And when I walked in, I was like, super loud and i was like yeah i'll tune it up no problem (laughs) nice wow that's got to be a nice compliment i do Um, remember though that you know after that we went and uh, elton john did a quote in cream magazine and he said something to the effect of you know they, they look so they sound so great and they play so great and they look great as well and we used that quote in a in a um, sort of fold out card that we sent out to all these record producers, nice. you know, uh, offering our services as a horn section. Cool, very cool. Yeah, you got. I I it looked as if during that '80s period where the band was, it was sort of a little fallow for the band. You guys sort of amped up the collaborations, working with other people, playing on their albums, as maybe as a way to sort of stay vital, but not have to. Maybe it just wasn't the right time to put out more Tower of Power music. I don't know. In the eighties, they didn't want Tower of Power. Yeah, music. that's true. So, you yeah. know, we did we we did some recording in the early eighties that never got released, and then years later, I released it on Rhino. Uh, Ten thousand copies came out on Handmade. We did another record called Tower of Power Direct, mm-hmm. which was a direct to disc recording, and then we did a, an actual album. Uh, that was a record company called Cypress Records called Power. But that's all we did in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, not the best period, but at least you came out of it okay. Um, now, did you play with Terrence Trent Darby? No, but one of my trumpet players, Lee Thornburg, did. Uh, and they put it is. in the list because of that. Okay. I had him on the show. He's a trumpet. And you know, Doc might have been on there too. I'm not sure. Okay. okay. Um, and then another name popped up on there, Andrew Gold. I actually really love Andrew Gold. Did you play with him? We did, but I have no memory of the session. Oh, okay. Huh, I wondered about that one. And then another one that seemed really odd and stuck out, um, Public Image Limited. Did you guys play with yeah, Public yeah, Image yeah. Limited? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we did.
Sick of the Dam we play with Poison. Yeah, that's crazy. How I mean, Poison makes a little bit more sense. I guess, I mean, does Johnny Rotten, I mean, John Lydon, does he call you and say, hey, I'm, you may not know me, but I was with the Sex Pistols and I love Tower of Power and I want you to come play on our album? You know, I have no idea who called oh. us. All I know is we got the session, we got showed the up session. and we did it. Yeah. Okay. Crazy. And then another one, um, you guys played with the New Monkeys. Is that right? Yeah. How did that happen? Sort of they, they, they like reformed or something. And, well, it was uh, like a new. It was you know they they they, a team, it, they were going to make another sort of prefab band. Four young guys. We'll call them the New Monkeys. Give them a TV show, that kind of thing. And I think they put out one album. And uh, I have a lot of friends who are diehard Monkeys fans, and so I bet they would want to <laughs> know what this story is. Yeah, that, I have no memory of that one either. Oh, I remember. Boy. Wow, we were doing a monkeys uh, session. Yeah. That's all I remember. Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, I mean, we did the Care Bears movie. You, you did? We've done a lot of weird little sessions. Yeah. <laughs> John right. Sebastian produced that. That was a, that was a hoot. Because I'm a big fan of Love and Spoonful. You know? Sure. And, and John Sebastian is a solo artist and a songwriter. And he produced uh, the songs that we did on the Care Bears movie. So. Uh. You know, and at the time, I remember my kids were little, and they loved the Care Bears. And sure. I was telling them about it. He goes, "Oh, he goes, I'll send you some stuff." And he sent me these beautiful color photos of the Care Bears stuff to give to my kids. Nice. Wow, that is so great. Okay, last one. Now, this one, I wasn't sure. I believe. Are you guys playing on Jefferson Starship's Jane?
Yeah, actually, that was me by myself. Really? And then, uh, and then I called in Mick Gillette at the last minute. But the producer is Ron Nevison. Uh-huh. And Ron Nevison liked me. I was kind of hanging around the studio, and he said, Hey, man, I want you to. I want you to put some horns on it. So, not me. I, let me get my guys. He's like, no, I guess I think you can do it. I just need some low saxophone. And uh, so we played on the bridge. And But I think Mick Gillette might be on it as well. I okay. know, but I know I was on it for sure. That song is the greatest. And, uh, and oh, yeah, whatever Jane. you're doing is, yeah, Jane is one of the best. But I, you know, I got to be honest. I was like, there's horns on that song. I've never com- it's on you know, the bridge. Yeah, I I went back like, and listened. Bah, bah. Just sounds like some really low stuff. I remember I was yeah. my low B. Yeah, it's a nice little accent that I hadn't picked up on before. But of course, now I'm listening because I'm looking for you. You know, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is great. Okay, how do you feel about talking about Victor Conti? Are you okay with that? I'm a friend of Victor Conti. He sends me supplements all the time to this Does day. He? Really? Yeah. Uh, Okay, well then you must be okay with this. Now, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Victor Conti, the guy who started Balco, which went on to be the steroid supplier for Barry Bonds and whatnot, allegedly, uh, he got in a lot of trouble for that. He was a member of Tower of Power, and I don't remember what time frame, late 70s maybe? Late 70s, yeah. He was uh, Bruce Conti's cousin. We all yeah. knew him. He was an excellent player. He used to play with John Luke Ponty and you know a lot of different people, and Bruce sort of lobbied to get him in the band. He was in the band a short time, played on We Came to Play. And that was during a time, you know, I was really on drugs, and, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, what happened was eventually I got David Garibaldi to come back in. And when Garibaldi came back in, Bruce and Victor sort of went <laughs> to David and said, yeah, Mimi's out of it. And, uh, but we got it covered. We got songs, we got everything that we're, you know, it's going to be good. And David came to me after that and he said, Hey, what's going on? I joined the band because of you. I joined <laughs> yeah. the band again because yeah. of you. And it seems like Bruce and his cousin are trying to get you out of there. And I said, what? And I arranged a little ride with Victor and Bruce. So a couple of days later and let them know they were no longer in the band. <laughs> but it sounds like you remained but, you friends. Know, after that, you know, after that, we, we settled all our differences and became friends. And then after that, long after that, you know, and even back then, Victor was really into supplements and health stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mind you, we're all doing coke and him too, you know, yeah. a lot of drugs and stuff, but he always was into those health supplements and stuff. And then, you know, after that, I remember years later, he showed up at the San Mateo fair. He comes, I go, Hey, Victor. And I knew his wife, Audrey, you know, and, uh, and I go, well, you know, what, what are you doing? He said, are you playing? He goes, no, he goes, I'm kind of busy. I go, Oh, what's that? He goes, don't you read the paper, man? He goes, uh, he was busting people for uh, steroids in the Olympics yeah. down in Australia and stuff. Mm-hmm. He was always in the news. But then while he was doing that, he figured out these ways to beat that system. Mm-hmm. And he helped all these people to use steroids in a way that wouldn't be detected. Yeah. And then he got busted. He yeah. was young. But he served his time yeah. and uh, came out. And now he's on this whole crusade to clean up sports. You know, crazy. he came around again to that same place, the Mateo Fair, and he brought me these supplements. He has this one called Zima, Z-M-A, it's zinc, magnesium, something. And you take it at night, it helps your muscles replenish, you know, after workouts. Yeah. And uh, and he also has this one called Arobatine. You take it before you work out. And, uh, and he trains a lot of the boxers that I did. No He's way. got a great training facility 
up there, you know, and uh, they're called Snack now, S-N-A-C. Okay. So Victor, yeah, he's, he's a buddy of mine. He came to the 50th anniversary celebration, Crazy. and uh, he's a good guy. He learned his good. lesson, and uh, good. he's helping out to clean up sports. When all that went down, I mean, I mean I've mean, i read that. I believe the book was called Game of Shadows, if I remember right. I read that book. I mean, he did not come off well in, during that time. What were your yeah, thoughts? He was looking pretty sleazy, you know? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was rough. What were your thoughts when you're seeing this guy, this buddy of yours, kind of getting in all this trouble? We, we all we all have things that we do that are you know uh, I mean we're, we're all sinners. My yeah. point. <laughs> yeah. You know we true. all fall short in many ways, and you know we're all looking to get ahead, and, and a lot of times in very self-centered, selfish ways. And uh, he he saw an opportunity and he took it, mm-hmm. and uh, it wasn't kosher what he did, mm-hmm. but he got caught. And uh, I always tell people, this is what I tell you: God will get your attention. Mm. You know, I mean, you can yeah. go along and do your thing, and, and you might be, you know, not living right, but eventually, God will get your attention. Yeah, good point. What happened with Victor is, you know, he brought him to his knees, and a little time in the penitentiary that'll mm-hmm. that'll, that'll check you out, you know. Yeah. And so he's doing good now. Good. Okay. Wow, fascinating. Um, okay, one more thing I want to talk about. You guys are receiving a lifetime achievement award. From Soul Tracks next month. Maybe yeah, you're I too humble. To, yeah, maybe you're too humble to tell us about this. But what is it exactly? Because that's quite an honor. Honestly, I have no idea. I found ah. it yesterday. <laughs> uh, you know, Fiona. We have this um, publicity girl, Fiona. Yeah. She's she's amazing. She's the she one who contacted publicity me. Girl. Yeah, yeah. She's awesome. I call her Queen Fiona. <laughs> and uh, and she had told me she said, you know, I'm trying to get you guys up for this lifetime achievement award on Soul Tracks. And I was like, yeah, you know, I don't expect this to happen. Or if it does, great. You know, yeah. I found it flying. So yeah, I'm pleased. And uh, I know nothing about it. Okay. Well, congratulations, nonetheless. I mean, you know, yeah. anyone winning a lifetime achievement award for 50 years. And has always been as good as you guys are. That's a real testament to your artistry. So congratulations. Yeah, I'm pleased. Very pleased. Good. Um, well, look, Emilio, this was this was a joy. You guys are so good at what you do. And, you know, I've been th- when I think about Tower of Power lately, I've been thinking they may not have a bunch of hits that are like the – ubiquitous hits that if you go to what I'm saying is if you go to a tower power show, you're going to watch artistry more than like that one song that you like you're watching, you're going to, to enjoy a level of professionalism and music musicality that is rare in this world. And you, you only get it in a few spots. And one of them is at a tower of power show. So anyway, congrats on everything. Well, I appreciate it, and uh, and you're right. You know, we never really rang the bell, but we have this amazing long career, these yeah. amazing diehard fans, and we're blessed by God in many ways. I have no complaints. Yeah. Tell me one thing. Tell me your favorite story. I mean, you guys are celebrating. You, you've got to be a little nostalgic. You're celebrating 50 years. When you look back, tell me about the most unbelievable, tastiest memory that you have. Maybe it was meeting a hero you know, you were there at the like um, Haight-Ashbury period of the Bay Area. You know, I mean, maybe you're in the East Bay, but you're still rubbing shoulders with the, with the airplane and with uh, Grateful Dead. What What's the best memory of all of this for you? 
Well, I don't know what the best one is. I have a lot of those stories. I usually tell the one about Aretha Franklin where she said we were her favorite band. Really? At the Fillmore. But, you know, I I think I'll tell you this story about Rick Stevens. You know, we were talking about people going astray. You know, uh, Rick Stevens was our singer on uh, Sparkling Sand on East Bay Grease. And he sang the whole album, Bump City. And he was, you know, he sang the hit, You're Still In Man and Down to the Night Club. And he was a a fabulous singer, a fabulous entertainer, but you know, he got, he got into drugs and I eventually had to fire him. And then I hired Lenny Williams and four years after, uh, he was fired, he murdered, uh, I think two people for sure, maybe three mm. and put a girl in the car. And then, you know, there was a manhunt for him and found him in a park shooting up and took him to jail. He served 37 years for wow. murder. Wow. And he had several life sentences and should never have gotten out. But, you know, as, as a lot of people in prison do, he found God, you know, became a Christian. Well, you always wonder, is that for real? You right, know? right. But, you know, uh, here's why I know it's for real. He got out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he got out of prison after 37 years and he shows up. And, uh, you know, he's a good guy. We used to, we, we used to talk all the time. I said, man, you know, I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. You know, I wonder about, you know, are you on the level? You know, I said, I think you need to let people know. You need to help people, young people, so that they don't make the mistakes you made. Because that's what I'm trying to do. And he came and he sat in with us. I remember, I'll never forget it. The first time at Yoshi's in Oakland, which was a sure. big gig for us. Yeah. Back to the brim, you know. And he came out, <laughs> and you know we do the intro, and the people are going nuts. And out he walks in a white suit, and they're going crazy, you know. Oh, and right. then <laughs> he goes down on my knees, and he falls down on his knees, and the place went crazy, you know. Cool, thought, man. You know, if, if ever anybody ever doubted, if there's a God, man, yeah, you know, there it here's is. this guy, man. Good, and he, you know, he did he did a lot of good before he passed away, and sat in with us several times, and uh, that's my favorite story I'll tell you cool. today. I love it, I love it. Well, thank you for talking with me, Emilio. You guys are legends my in my pleasure. book. There you have it, Emilio Castillo of Tower of Power. I hope you guys heard some things in here that you like. I personally, for my taste, I don't know what is better than R&B and funk from the 70s with horns featured very prominently. That is just the best kind of music there is to me. And so I want to close it out with what is probably my favorite Tower Power song. This is Drop It in the Slot from that album in the slot that I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that I bought recently. Oh my gosh, it is so good. And go get Soul Side of Town. At least stream it or check it out on Spotify or something first. If you love those horns and there's nobody better, then uh, you will love this album. And I have to say a very big thank you to Fiona Bloom for helping to make this happen. Thank you, Fiona. Now, next week, we are featuring one of the bigger guests we've ever had on the show, to be honest. He was a hired gun that played alongside one of the biggest pop acts in history for many, many, yet many years. He doesn't do that anymore, but because of having appeared in a very popular music documentary recently, um, he's now also a bit of a movie star. So if you haven't figured out who this person is, trust me, you're going to want to come back next week to hear this conversation. 
It's a doozy, and I love it. All right? Now, huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Thanks, buddy, for all that you do in putting these episodes together. You guys know by now you can find us on Facebook and like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We put out new episodes every Tuesday, and we will be back next week. Thanks, everybody. We love you, and Happy New Year.